Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. This is the Ocean Protect podcast, talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect, committed to change. Anissa, welcome to the Ocean Protect podcast. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. Where are you calling from, Anissa? I'm in Sydney at the moment. Fantastic. And Anissa has to be pointed out, this will, will be episode number one of season four of the Ocean Protect podcast. I feel privileged. Yeah. <laughs> Jeremy and me always laugh. We started this show thinking only our mums would listen. We had no idea, potentially still don't, but you we've had a great time over the last two years and we want to keep going and we learn so much from guests and I reckon you will be no exception. You've got an amazing resume and you do amazing work, so certainly keen to dive into it, that's for sure. We always like to start back as a wee nipper. So, Anissa, you know, like where did you grow up? How did you get to where you are today? Okay, I have a bit of a weird backstory. Love them. They're the best. Yeah, the best. <laughs> so I grew up um, not very far from where I live now, about five minutes from here. I grew up playing in the mangroves every day with my dog, looking for crabs and mud skippers and all that sort of stuff. And so that was sort of what I did all the time at school, collecting tadpoles and in the bush and, you know, all the usual sort of things because we, at the time, we lived on the outskirts of Sydney, although now it's not so much outskirts because we grew a bit. And then my background, I guess, is I've always loved animals. I've always been totally in love with all animals and, and nature. And my passion was to become a vet. It didn't actually happen. And so what I ended up doing was, at the time, life was a bit hard. And so I ended up applying for an accounting, a business degree, because my friend had done that. And so I thought, oh, yeah, that might be right. I like maths could be good. So I, I applied and did a business degree and got a cadetship with Coopers and Librand, which is now PricewaterhouseCoopers. Oh, yeah. In financial audit. So I was working in banking and finance doing audits for a while and it really wasn't my thing while well, I was learning all about accounting at uni. So I did that for a few years and then I moved around in PwC into sort of other areas to try and find something that interested me more like risk management and crisis management and sort of IT security. But every year I was like, this is just not me. I can't do this. It's just not, I just can't keep trying to help rich people get richer sort of mentality. And so I ended up going back to uni got redundancy at PwC, which was really nice of them to do, and went back to uni and did environmental science. 
and pretty much haven't looked back since. And so I did that part-time and I started to test the waters. I knew that there was a way to sort of transition out of the financial world into the sort of more environmental world. And so I ended Mm. up applying or just ringing a whole bunch of environmental consulting companies to talk to them about how do I transition? Because I figured if they give me some guidance, then I can try and work out how do I move out of, you know, one world into the other. And anyway, in the process of doing that, one of them offered me a job as a senior environmental risk manager. And so my risk management stuff came into play and I I moved into the environmental risk world for a couple of years and then thought I'll test my foot and see if I really transitioned into the environment world and applied for a CEO role for an environmental NGO in Australia and got it. And then it was in coastal marine and fishery sort of space. And then I was just like that all systems go and I haven't looked back since. And yeah, so that's sort of how I got into where I am now. And then I guess being a little NGO is a struggle. And so when you're relying on government funding and governments change, then you lose your funding and things happen. And so I ended up leaving it after about five years when we lost a lot of our funding and started up my own consulting company, which is TRMR doing um, environmental conservation, natural resource management sort of consulting basically. Mm -hmm. And at the beginning of last year, um, there's a group of us that run TRMR now, but at the beginning of last year, we just decided we act like a conservation group. We think like a conservation group. We want to be a conservation group, so let's become one. So we turned ourselves into a charity at the beginning of last year. And so we're now in this transition phase. We still do consulting work, but it's, you know, the fee-for-service work actually helps fund our program and sort of the, helps us to live on our goals and objectives that we're trying to do. Being counter to environmental warrior, I mean, it's certainly two very different ends of the spectrum, but I guess it would come in handy because, as you are aware, the, to, to fix the problems and there's so many problems in our environment, it takes money. And you've either got to earn that money, like you say, for a fee-for-service, or you've got to go and get that charity dollar, which it's hard to get that charity dollar because so many great groups out there fighting for that same dollar. Mm. Do you find it's given you an advantage by starting off at Price Waterhouse, going through the boring risk audit stuff? Have you found that now and, you know, 25 years later, is that coming in handy and, and do you look back and go, geez, I'm thankful that I, I started off there? Yeah, you know, I do. I think about it every now and then. It wasn't really my world. It was an amazing experience and PwC, one thing they do really well is they invest in their staff. So they put, you know, they put me through all sorts of training and leadership programs, plus looking at how other businesses run and looking at how do you strengthen and help those businesses address their challenges and issues. You know, like I wouldn't say I'm a business person, but it just gave me that mindset to know, okay, if I'm going to run an NGO, then you need to run it like it's a profit venture, not a backyard smell of an oily rag type operation or or it's really hard to to keep going so yeah I think those skills and experiences that I got from that other world really did help me to be able to do what I do now. Yeah there's so many key messages just out of that little snippet of your life which you've beautifully summarized like actually our most recent guest you'd know Jeff Hansen who's the CEO or managing director of Sea Shepherd Australia and he started off 
early career as a, I think, computer engineer and just had enough and transitioned and obviously gone on to other things in, in Sea Shepherd. But also, I guess, from a, a professional environmental perspective, like we get a lot of interests and approaches from various people looking to try and have a career in protecting the planet for whatever that might be for some people. But often they don't know where to start. And the key advice I always provide, at least the people that approach me, is just talk to people in the industry. If, you've, yeah. if you're thinking about going into something or doing anything, Thing. Have a chat to people who are all already sort of in that area. Myself and Jeremy, we're never averse to catching up with whoever for a smoothie or a coffee, particularly if they're interested in kind of what we do. We love talking about what we do and we're more than happy to provide at least our perspective or career advice. And I think that's great. And, and invariably, it leads to a job. Like I teach at uni in, in 15 years of teaching a group at the university. I've maybe been approached by one or two students, I think two students for career advice, and I've given them both jobs. Yeah. So there's no harm in actually trying to get advice or insights or whatever. But to the point that was just talked about, yeah, look, we see a lot of NGOs, not-for-profits really struggling to do good work because of the lack of resources and funding that they have available. Like Jeremy will always remember with me being at the Litter Conference uh, in Sydney, what, two or three years ago, Jeremy, and so many NGOs and community groups were just cap in hand trying to get a $5,000 government grant every six months, whatever, to do what the amazing work that they do. Invariably, you know, it runs out and you do need to be a sustainable business to achieve effective outcomes yeah. in sustainability. You know, like we're small, you know, we're only tiny, but we're small and mighty, you could say, is sort of yes. our ambition. And, but we try to be clever about how we do that because we know as small we can't do everything because we don't have the millions of dollars that we would like to tick every single box on our programs of, you know, what the priorities are that we think need to be done. We try and be clever about it and look at how do we leverage and who can we work with and where can we sort of influence or try and partner on particular things so we don't have to do everything ourselves as well. Mm. At the moment, we're in a merger process with a little tiny NGO that I'm the chair of, which has been one of those smell of an oily rag type ones for like 12 years. We have struggled and struggled and struggled. And, you know, we both just agreed, yeah, let's just see if we can, let's bring it together under our banner where we can then sort of, you know, leverage from and build and provide them with more support to be able to do what they're trying to do. And their programs, which is working with the youth, like teenagers and so on around ocean issues, aligns really strongly with our Generation Nature Plus program. And so we just said, yeah, let's just do this and, you know, reduce our costs on both sides. But at the same time, then we can strategically do more together than trying to be apart is what we think. So it's, I think it's sort of a mix of you need some business skills, but then you also really need to think through your strategies and try and work out how can I leverage and manoeuvre, you know, when my $5,000 grant runs out, it runs out. Like how do I, mm. you know, who can I work with to help me still achieve my, my mission, if you like? I think that's the same whether you're a non-for-profit or you're a business. We started out on the cell of an oily ragged ocean protect. We're eating noodles and, and, and <laughs> foregoing, foregoing whatever we had to to make sure we keep the, the doors going so we could grow and hopefully get bigger. And like you say, it's the same for, for a non-for-profit. And Brad and I do come across a lot of them. And one of the things that we do sort of see is a, a lot of the times you've got a lot of non-for-profits doing very similar things. So yeah. to, hear, to hear you say, well, how do I leverage that? How do I make that connection? How do I bring that in there? It's something that I don't think is, you know, too many people focus on. You know, yeah. some people are like, oh, my charity is the best or, you know, it's all about my dollar. 
well, hold on, if you take a step back and partner with that person on this project, and like you say, people will share those resources. The cost can be spread across two or three different entities, and you're still getting that outcome and potentially an outcome for two or three collaborators. And I think, you know, like you look at the challenges that the world faces, like from a climate change point of view and with the biodiversity loss that's happening, we don't have time to keep reinventing the wheel and trying to be competing with everybody else and protecting. We we don't have time for that. We need to get together and just make this stuff happen and try and Mm. get things happening at scale, which is what we're focused on. The state of the planet is that is what's at risk and, and us and our health and well-being and all the rest of it that comes with it. And so I think we're starting to see more NGOs think like that, which I think is fantastic. Whether that's translating into more and more NGOs starting to work together rather than continuing to duplicate or being protective of their patch or, you know, all that sort of stuff, I don't know. I, I don't know yet. But for us, we just we need a paradigm shift in how conservation is done and mm. That's why TRMI became a, a not-for-profit because we'd seen what goes on in the conservation world for the, you know, the last 20 years and it's like, no, nah, there's better ways to do this so you know, we want to try and help make that happen somehow, not do it ourselves but at least facilitate it. You've just hit uh, my next question. So tell us about TRMR and how originally it was a consulting firm. What are your core values? Yeah, it means Earth, Ocean. Um, well, great name. In Spanish, only because all the English versions of what I wanted to call it were taken. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> From capitalist, capitalist pigs like us. <laughs> I can see, I can see you looking at us. Going, have you got that? No. We, Did you look at the Swahili version before the Spanish version? Or no, actually, it was a friend suggested to me. Oh, why don't you look for Spanish? I'm a good That's really nice. Yeah, so Tierra as a consulting company, started in 2008, and it was just me originally. Really, just meant to be a part-time venture, if you like, till I found another job. After the exhaustion I'd been through of losing all our funding and fighting for six months to try and save us in the NGO that I'd worked for previously. And I learned a lot from that process as well. So it was meant to be just give me a break, do a bit of contracting, and then I'll find another job and that'll be the end of it. And anyway, you know, we're into year 14 now and now I've got a board and st- a few staff, not many, but a few amazing staff that are really committed and go above and beyond. And our vision is is about trying to secure a future where people and nature thrive together. So sort of that's like the bigger picture. The way, as I was talking about before, about leveraging and manoeuvring and levers, levers that we can pull and so on, our role we think is that we'll try and help people and communities to unlock this transformational change so that we can build resilience with the environment, resilience with communities and people and so on, and try and halt and reverse this nature loss crisis that we're in by 2050, I guess, is what everybody talks about. We're on that same bandwagon. Yeah. Who picked 2050? I mean, (laughs) let's fix it in 50 years, you know, like it's going to be fine. It's far enough away that all the politicians now won't be in government, so maybe I was going to be cynical. I guess we have three strategies that we try and deliver our programs using, which is the first one is around um, unlocking new and innovative thinking and approaches and collaborations so that we can try and meet the challenges that society faces as well as create this policy-enabling environment that will help get the issues dealt with at scale. 
And then secondly, we're really keen on fostering tomorrow's change makers, so the leaders of tomorrow, so that because they're the ones that have got to shape this nature-positive net-zero world. So that sort of ties in what I was saying before about the program, the Ocean Youth Program and so on. The final one is enabling community-led transformational action on the ground at the scale and speed needed. And we've had some projects in the past where we learned a lot about how do you scale up and expedite outcomes in the conservation sector. And so using, I guess, our experiences from the past, as well as other people's thinkings and learnings and so on that, you know, we're looking at trying to deliver. And it's all it all comes back to this paradigm shift. We need this paradigm shift in global thinking and action if we're ever going to reach nature positive net zero by 2050, you know, like, and so we want to try and help you know, achieve that paradigm shift how we can in the little way that we can contribute it to it by helping people think differently, act differently, let's try and work together differently, let's learn from the past and do things in a different way rather than just continue to do the same old, same old and we're not really getting traction. We've got four pillars, everything is underpinned by, if you like, which is community-centred is our first one, so Everything we do is centred around the needs and the aspirations of communities come first. So it's about understanding a community's priority. And we, I should say we work across um, Asia, Pacific and Australia. So we're sort of developing countries as well as here. So, yeah, so making sure that the community's priorities and aspirations and so on are identified and that we're focused on delivering them and working with women and other marginalised groups to you know empower them to be able to contribute to the decision-making, drive the change that they want within their villages and, and that sort of thing. And then systems thinking is the next one, which is like trying to take a big picture approach to how we deal with the complexity of the world and rather than trying to put everything in silos, which is, you know, governments running silos, conservation runs in silos, the development sector runs in silos, let's try and integrate things together and rather than focusing on the parts which is what we've done up to now let's try and focus on the whole and it's more complicated to do that but you get a better outcome so it's about trying to find you know effective solutions in in a complex situation the third one is around the IUCN brought out a nature-based solutions standard a couple of years ago and everything we do is underpinned by that standard. It provides this sound science-based approach to how you use nature-based solutions to, to address the challenges of society. You know, how do you do climate change adaptation? How do you deal with food security issues? How do you deal with poverty alleviation? All that sort of stuff. And the final one is, is that we're solutions focused so there's no point repeating the past what I was mentioning before, it's all about we don't have time given the scale of the challenges. we just got to focus on learning the lessons, building on what's worked in the past, taking the good ideas and, and you know, taking calculated risks but to drive those outcomes. And one of those projects or programs is GhostNets Australia. And this is something that this is more or less how you came across my radar as well. Like we know GhostNets are a, a big issue, but from my perspective, it's a very complex and, and, and significant issue, but it's a very hard one to try and uh, address and mitigate. But you guys have recently sort of put out a, or helped put out a report around this issue, which we'll talk to. But just taking it back to sort of, I guess, fundamentals, what exactly are ghost nets? Ghost nets or ghost gear. In Australia, we call them ghost nets, but globally, they're called abandoned, lost, discarded fishing gear or ghost gear. Mm-hmm. And basically, it's fishing gear that has been lost or someone's 
just gumped it or it's been entangled on a reef or something like that or it was illegal fishing and they got caught and they cut the line and ran. It's basically fishing gear that continues to fish without anybody in control of it. Mm. And so there are, you know, hundreds of thousands of tonnes of fishing gear from everything from all sorts of nets to fish aggregating devices to line and traps all over the world where key fishing locations are happening and in some cases being carried in currents from one part of the world into another, which is what happens from an Australian point of view, and they continue to fish. So, you know, fishing gear is designed to be really efficient at catching what you're targeting. So if you're using a gill net, you know, you're targeting particular fish where you want their gills to get trapped because that's the easiest way to catch them, right? Mm. So gill nets are a very effective way of catching stuff. But the problem with gill nets, which is, you know, one of the worst types of, of ghost gear that we have globally, is that they continue to fish and they don't just continue to catch the target stock that you're aiming for, but they catch the predators that then see that stock caught in mm. it. So things like sharks and dolphins and turtles and all sorts of other fish and so on also get caught in those nets. And so you end up with a situation where you've got seabirds and turtles and sharks and even whales and so on entangled in nets, which, you know, it's a, for those animals that are air breathing, it's a slow, gruesome drowning basically mm. if they mm. can't get to the surface to breathe or they're just so entangled that they starve to death because they can't release themselves. Mm. So it's a massive, massive issue in terms of its impact on wildlife. But it's also, you know, navigation hazards. There's a whole lot of other issues that it causes to people. For trawlers who pull it, you know, trawling over, get ground, that pull up old nets and get all tangled up and, you know, it wrecks their boat and then they've got to try and work on getting the propeller untangled and so on. You know, they're, they're a big, big challenge globally. And plus it's a massive cost. In some countries, you know, like in Australia, if you lose your net, they're like fifteen, twenty thousand dollars each. It's not a cheap thing. So, you know, generally fishermen don't want to lose their gear. The fishermen in places like Australia don't want to do that. But in other countries, gear is cheap or the fishermen don't necessarily own it. So the guy that owns the boat might provide the gear and so there's less incentive to look after the gear because if they lose it they'll just get a new one sort of thing or it might be low quality and it rips really easy and gets entangled on a net really easy which is what happens in the pacific with some of the gear that they use there it's really poor low quality stuff so it's always getting entangled so yeah so that's the ghost nets are and, and and i guess why they're why they're an issue have you got any stats on, you know, like the quantity or volume of ghost nets in Australia or even around the world? Have you got any of those sort of figures you can throw at us? There's a number that gets thrown around around 640,000 tonnes of gear floating in the ocean, but there's some recent work being done by an amazing person at CSIRO with a bunch of others looking at that number and it probably isn't that. But that's the number that you'll see quoted everywhere, 640,000 tonnes. So I know it's a rough number, but 640,000 tonnes of ghost nets being lost into the ocean every year. Yeah, the latest science is saying that that, actually, that number is actually not right. It's an underestimate probably and there's a whole Und- Underestimate. But uh, we don't have a new number yet. Yeah. So... It's amazing. I mean, most of the estimates that we are getting in and around how much plastic's up in the Himalayas or at the bottom of the ocean, mm-hmm. it, yeah. as this, as science evolves and we start looking more into plastic and all these things, the numbers are always so low. Yeah. It's a 
horrendous, yeah. And this gear is, you know, the bulk of this gear is plastic as well, like yep. you say, plastic and nylon and so on. And what's there now will be there in, you know, 600 years' time. It'll still be there. So, like, when you think about it in that context and the fact that every year there's more and more fishing boats contributing to the problem globally, it's a huge issue, which is, I guess, why the Global Ghost Gear Initiative was put together you know, as a way to try and bring all the different groups that are interested in trying to work on this issue, plus the industry and the retailers and the governments all together to collectively find solutions for this at the global level. Are ghost nets mutually buoyant? Do they sink to the bottom? Can you give us any um, description of, of their movements? It depends. So some nets will be entangled on the bottom. So I don't know if you guys have ever been diving over in the Philippines or somewhere like Indonesia or something and you'll you'll come across a beautiful reef and you'll see that there's net all encrusted or entangled in the reef. So in that situation, those ones are on the bottom. And unless there's like some massive storm that's going to churn it up and release it from the bottom, it's pretty much there and the coral usually grows over it and things keep getting entangled in it. Ugh. But in other cases, like I got a notification on the weekend from a fisherman up in, up off Weeper, about nine kilometres off Weeper, there was a massive gill net with floats on it that had come down Indonesia from the Arafura Sea into the Gulf of Carpentaria and was just floating in the in the shipping channel and it, it was massive. I mean we haven't they haven't retrieved it yet because it's so big. You know, it can it can de- depend and then you've got traps and so on which are obviously on the bottom but continue to fish you know, in a static sort of situation and fish aggregating devices are designed to float to attract fish to get under them and so on. And so if they break free, they continue to float until they fall apart, I guess, and then they either sink or bits float away. So it's a real mess. Just, just picking up on something that you said earlier, most fishermen don't want to lose their gear. I watched Country Calendar now. I'm back in New Zealand. I watched it with my mother last night. And it was actually over a young guy fishing in New Zealand. And most fishermen, they deeply love fish, even though you think they're out there killing them. They, you know, like they generally mm. want to keep the population. So have you created a bit of a awareness within fishery? So someone gave you a call. Is that something that you're trying to set up or is that a natural thing that a fisherman from up there gives you a call to say, hey, there's a ghost net there? Is that something that actively happens all around Australia? Could you shed a bit of light? It doesn't happen all around Australia really, but there are in Australia, the ghost net issues are mainly in northern Australia and they're not coming from Australian fisheries over 95 percent of it is or 95 percent of it is coming from overseas from Arafura Sea so up in from China and down through the Arafura Sea and into Australia just to make that clear. There's systems and processes that have been in place for a while now in Australia about reporting you know fishermen are meant to report in their logbooks if they lose gear at the Commonwealth fisheries level. I don't know I'm not as familiar with all the state fisheries to know if they have the same requirements but at Commonwealth level they're meant to report lost gear and then there's also like through the Global Ghost Gear Initiative there's an app you can download where you can log lost gear that you find or if you've lost it yourself you can log it with the GPS coordinates and so on and it goes into a big global database and then through GhostNets Australia in the years past we only took over GhostNets Australia in 2016 it had been going for a long time before that but there's a I guess a mechanism in that where people are really familiar with the program and so this guy 
who was on a fishing boat, I guess, just sent me an email and said, hey, we found this net, here's some pictures. And now what's happened is AFMA, so Australian Fisheries Management Authority Defence, so the Border Force guys up in the northern, that look after northern Australia, and Parks Australia are now working on an um, interception program where gear is reported, particularly if it's floating, like it's actually floating in the ocean or in, in the Gulf or something, then you can report it to them and then they have a whole process to go and intercept that gear. And if they can't pick it up straight away, they'll put a satellite tag on it so they can at least find it again. And then they'll organise for appropriate size boat with the right gear to go and collect that net or fish aggregating device or whatever it is and get it out of the water and all that sort of stuff. A lot mm. of the fishermen, though, will, if they find gear, they'll actually look to see if there's any turtles entangled in it. And, you know, like northern prawn fishery is really great with all this stuff in that, you know, I've seen footage of the guys will go and release the turtles and then to get them out of the net if they find turtles entangled and then, you know, and then they report it and all the rest of it and it goes through that process. So fishermen in Australia are pretty good with this sort of stuff. You know, it's it's fishermen in other countries where your gear is not so precious to you and you don't own the business that you run and so that accountability and, you know, the fisheries management is not as strong or doesn't exist. There's a whole lot of factors for why fishermen lose nets or lose gear and so it's you know it's 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 a complex issue and it's sort of different in every country from our point of view our guys try to do the right thing generally and there's a lot to unpack there there's a couple of really interesting points i just want to reiterate and so number one it's great to hear that australian the fishing industry in australia is actually doing a reasonable job if they lose a net they notify the relevant authorities and and actually are proactive and actually removing the nets and saving wildlife where they can to jeremy's point around the dynamics of the plastic or the or the or the ghost nets yeah it's i think it's a really important point like the, the estimates from i think you know estimate that a of all the plastic that's in our ocean, something like 94% is at the sea floor. But obviously, ghost gear or ghost nets are generally near the surface, or if, if it's shallow waters, they might get caught in a reef, but it's generally fairly close to the surface. So obviously, when they're near or at the surface, they're going to do a lot of damage. Yeah. So a, a bunch of plastic on the, on the sea floor is obviously going to be far less harmful than nets or other plastics on or at the, at the surface. And obviously, these fish nets, they are designed to capture and entangle yeah. wildlife, as simple as that. So it's a huge mass of plastic, but the impact of that plastic is significant. Just from looking at some of the stats coming out of your uh, report, which is, and I'll, call, I'll include a link to this in the show notes, it's called Ghost Nets Needs Analysis and Feasibility Study for Northern Australia. Like the masses uh massive but the the numbers of ghost nets i think it's like in the gulf of carpentaria alone there was a reference to something like 15,000 ghost nets have washed up onto the beaches there since 2004 and if you think about how big some of these ghost nets are like you yeah. use the term massive and i'm thinking uh, i'm not even sure how big that is i'm guessing they are kilometers long like kilometers, kilometers and kilometers of just one tangled mess so yeah, and when they wash up, it, they're a huge – like if they are intercepted, they're obviously very difficult to remove, number one. But when they wash up on the beach, generally these, uh, I guess, areas where they're washing up onto are very, very remote. No real waste management facilities, very low population density. So how do you even begin to remove them? Like with long story short, with great difficulty. Yeah. It's a huge issue. But I guess, I guess we're not here to talk about doom and gloom. What can we actually – do about it like so what what are the key initiatives that you are sort of promoting or advocating for in your role 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. There's been a Indigenous Ranger program running for years up in Northern Australia, actually around Australia. But the ones in Northern Australia were involved in um, the beginning of Ghost Nets Australia back in 2003, I think it was when it was, we started it. So those Ranger groups have played, play a really key role in trying to look after their country. They're the, primarily the guys that go and find these bits of net and tangled gear and so on washed up on these really remote beaches and they do everything they can to try and remove it. And so we continue to want to support them with what they're doing and try and find ways to help streamline process. So just to give you an example, you know, like these beaches can be 80 kilometres long and they could be, you know, like 50, 100 kilometres from where the ranger base is to even get into that beach and collect a net is, you know, a massive, it's, it's massive planning. Mm. You don't just go for the day, you're there for weeks because of the remoteness and the challenges and the tides and all the rest of it, the roads, or there might not even be roads, you know, so you've got to go in by boat and then you might need a barge and then a boat and a whole bunch of equipment and, you know, like it's a really complex, full-on process in some instances and so from the work we did with this report that we did for Parks Australia you know one of the things the ranger groups were saying to us is that there's so much double handling in the process you know because of the the challenges that they face with the remoteness so if there's ways to find if there's solutions to reduce that double handling whether it's tools and equipment that they don't have new stuff that's coming out on the market or there's sort of new, new vessels or vehicles or whatever that they can get that will help that process. We looked at all the opportunities of what was out there and listened to what they said they wanted and what they'd heard of and seen and sort of went and, and looked at a whole bunch of the different options. And you know, But what it comes down to is you can't just say, right, everybody gets one of these for all the different ranger groups because every situation is different. Like their environment that they work in is different. The conditions and the, the weather and so on is different depending on where you are in the Gulf for example. And so you really need fit for purpose tailored solutions that address the needs of that particular ranger group rather than saying, okay, one ranger group um, was looking at stuff you find on the beach, those machines on the beaches here that go and clean the beaches every morning, Mm. pick up all the seaweed and stuff. So they were saying, oh, that might be really good for us because our beach is easy to access. It's flat. You know, so it's the sort of thing, whereas other beaches, that wouldn't suit. So other Mm. ranger groups said, no, we're not interested in that. It wouldn't work. Us. So you sort of really got to look at what is going to suit the situation and address their needs. And, you know, and in, in most instances, they just need more manpower, you know, because it's not just ghost nets. It's like 
the marine debris issue in general is enormous in the Gulf of Australia and, in fact, is up in northern Australia and has continued to increase. And so they're not just dealing with the ghost nets on the beach, they're dealing with tonnes and tonnes of rubbish that's also washing up. Some of the rangers were saying to us that some really remote locations where they haven't cleaned up yet and they know the rubbish is, is up to your knees deep. It's like a meat almost, you know, in some places it could be up to a metre deep of rubbish that's all just washing in from in Asia. So how you tackle that when you're in this really remote place with minimal resources, you just got to, you know, they're really versatile and they'll try and come up with solutions themselves. So, you know, from my perspective, trying to find ways that will help improve efficiencies, reduce double handling, make it easier and cheaper for them is sort of what we were looking at looking at in the report. And then you get into, you know, what do they do with it once they collect it? That's where we're really focused. You know, there's a lot of groups that work with rangers doing beach cleanups and that sort of thing. And we don't we don't really get involved in any of that. But what you then do with all that stuff, I guess, is is what I'm particularly interested in in trying to find fit for purpose solutions when you're in the middle of nowhere, you haven't got economies of scale to be able to stick it on a truck and just to give you an idea, like to go from Weepa up into the Torres Strait, which is, you know, it's fair distance but not significant, I guess, is take two tonne of net from Weepa up on the barge up into the Torres Strait costs $2,000 at a discounted rate. Like the cost in two tonne of net is not much. It's a really hard environment both from a conditions you know the environmental conditions that they work within as well as the economic reality and the fact that they don't have you know waste management systems in place up there and the transport options are limited but very expensive they have them but it's very expensive and so you've got to try and you know a lot of the ghost gear either goes to landfill if they can get it to landfill or it just gets burned, you know, get it off the beach and, you know, and then they burn it. So trying to find better solutions. And a lot of the landfills, the landfills up there are full, you know, so we've got to come up with these better ways to, you know, how do we deal with these challenges using new technology that's starting to emerge that can be in situ rather than having to have it, you know, having to send stuff to Sydney or Melbourne or Brisbane or whatever, or even Cairns, finding solutions that will, just make it easier for everybody and, and potentially create new businesses and economic opportunities for the rangers and the community groups, you know, that own that country. The report talks about a whole lot of options that we went through for all the new technologies that are out there and most of them won't work up in the region just because in northern Australia just because of the remoteness and the travel costs will kill anything. We've been looking at all sorts of alternate options and we found a few sort of remanufacturing options where you can do it in situ which we think will be viable because once it's processed, the transport costs are a lot less because it doesn't weigh as much and so on. And the big issue is the contamination, like marine debris and ghost gear is full of sand and dead bits and pieces and seaweed and algae and trying to clean that that gear is really hard. Mm. So we needed a solution. We need solutions that get over that situation plus the other thing is it, it can be really degraded if a net's been sitting on the beach for months and months with the sun when you pick it up it can just turn into white powder which is microplastics there's all these challenges with um, marine debris and ghost gear when you're in remote australia it's not as straightforward as if you find a net washed up in southern australia and then you can just sort of go collect it and yeah take it to the tip or whatever and yeah it's easy 
One of the things that we're very passionate about on the show is is turning the tap off. We, we always use an analogy that when you come home after a long day's work, you come into your house and all of a sudden there's water pouring down your stairs. You go up to the bathroom, your bath is overflowed, water's everywhere. What's the first thing you do? Do you go get a mop or do you go and turn the tap off? What are you doing about trying to turn that tap off? What we're hearing is that the majority of it is coming down from uh, from Asia, from China. It is coming down on our beaches. It is costing a huge financial and environmental costs that yeah. someone's paying for and will continue to pay for for, you know, as you say, microplastics, you know, it, it's going to keep affecting us. What have you guys identified? How we can reduce the impact of that coming down? Yeah, so we work a lot in Indonesia and up in the Coral Triangle region, which is six countries above us, Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines, Timor-Leste, Papua New Guinea and Solomon Islands. It's like the biodiversity hotspot for coral reefs of the world. We do a lot of work up with that region, particularly in Indonesia. And so I guess through my experience from working there for so many years and, and you know looking at the issue from that side and seeing the issue in those countries, but particularly Indonesia where it's huge. Up until a couple of years ago, we trialled a first net recycling project in Indonesia. So we set up, we worked with some communities in Morocco, which is just above Darwin, which is sort of the last point of call before the nets come down through the currents in the Arapura Sea and then into the Gulf, where they had lots of ghost gear washed up on beaches and just discarded nets everywhere and, you know, all, all sorts of challenges. So we worked for a couple of years with funding from World Animal Protection and Australian Government and, um, and, and others to set up this net recycling program, um, which was really successful in terms of community engagement and the community created a business and, you know, we, we had a relationship to export it to Slovenia to turn it into carpet tiles, but the transport cost killed it. Same as the issue in the Gulf. It's so remote up there that it was a real challenge. And so that model that we created, we realised okay, we can learn a lot from that. The community engagement part of it worked, but the, you've got to find closer to where the problem is solutions. Mm. You can't try and export your issue to somewhere else, which is, I guess, why Australia brought in the export ban on plastics. And so learning from that experience and through the work that I do at the regional level, there's different regional mechanisms through the Coral Triangle Program or the what they call ATSI, the Arafura Timor Sea Ecosystem Action Program, where countries work together to solve environmental challenges where you've got that migration of cross-boundary sort of issues. And obviously marine debris and ghost gear is one of them. I'm looking at working with them, or I'm working with them at the moment to try and see if we can get regional agreements and develop our regional approaches and monitoring protocols. How do we deal with these issues at a regional level? And yes, each country is doing a lot of, you know, trying to do stuff around marine debris and plastics, but we need to be working together to say, like you said, Jeremy, to stop the gear coming to Australia. And so, you know, that takes policy and government buy-in and commitment and all that sort of stuff to then have money flowing down the ground to these sort of programs. So I'm, I'm really conscious of working in that space. And, you know, we're really committed to, to trying to get some sort of regional agreement in place within the next 10 years. And it's not a quick process to solve, you know, like it'll take a while. And then the other thing we're doing is working in countries like Indonesia to actually bring some of these disposal solutions that we found from the feasibility study we did for Northern Australia, which fit the same situation, they've got the same sorts of conditions, and take them and implement them over there. So we're working on a few things at the moment to get those programs going and to have pilot 
trials in with different communities. If we can take these, you know, in situ sort of solutions, we don't need Slovenia, we don't need huge export costs mm. for these projects and become viable. And that's what we're focused on for Asia as well as for the Pacific, bringing these solutions that can that deal with the economies of scale challenges to these countries so that they can overcome the challenge and that also then helps you know stop it because it means there's less chance when a storm comes it'll get suspended in the water and wash up on a beach up north Brian and I've done a little bit of charity work within Indonesia. We did a swim run event in Bali <laughs> a couple of years ago and crushed it. Crushed it. We did actually. Um, <laughs> And we ended up raising a bunch of money and they, they helped them build an extra part of their recycling centre that they mm. had, had built on Nusulabong Island. Prinsulabong, yep. And you're right. The way to actually stop it is that the government, our government, should be investing those community groups over there. They, they don't want dirty beaches. They know it's a problem. They just don't have any education or infrastructure to, to get it done. And we're not talking about expensive recycling centres like you've got out yeah. in Western Sydney. Yeah. We've got a basic recycling that employs people within the community, which they turn that product into something else. And this is just one little island. And how many islands are there up in, 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 mm. in all those countries? There's hundreds of thousands. We too often look at the problem and we do have to go upstream. We say it all the time, we're stormwater nuts. You've got to go upstream to, the, to where the real problem is. It must be a tough gig, what you guys do, because... Every year, more and more of it's coming down and, you know, it's just building up and, and, you know, really, there's not too many people out there helping you. So hats off. And we're not the only ones doing this. There's lots of people working on this issue, you know, green debris issue in Australia. There's, you know, there's so many groups working on that issue and, and globally as well. The regional stuff, as there's not so many people working on that issue, that's sort of what I'm trying to facilitate this year to get all the different groups together and let's work together on trying to drive change mm. at the ATSI level or through the Coral Triangle Program or whatever to get these regional agreements in place that will create the policy to help scale action, if you like. And then at the global level, you know, there's lots going on too. There's a global plastic treaty under negotiation at mm. the moment, which, you know, if that gets up, I think there's some meetings in February coming up for that, and Australia is really active and pro- very proactive in that process to make sure, you know, marine debris and ghost gear are a part of that. Then, you know, that's going to help as well. You sort of think, oh, it's just more policy and blah blah blah, but you sort of need the policy enabling environment to help drive the action on the ground and to drive the funding that yeah. the developing countries need to actually act on the issues. And so you've got to go through that process to get this, you know, scaled action to, you know, so you get billions of dollars invested to help countries tackle the problem. This is the thing, like we, we touched briefly on the, the how horrendous the problem is and the damage it causes to Australian waterways and oceans alone. But for me, it's a, an, an ideal opportunity to solve it. Like for me, the solution seems readily obvious. Like obviously we need to support the people on the beaches doing the cleanup. That's obviously the, the least effective way of actually addressing this issue. I know, I know it has to be done. The cleanup is essential yeah. and they're doing a wonderful job. Very difficult work in horrendous conditions. They're rangers. They've got other responsibilities besides cleaning up ghost nets off beaches. I'm sure they'd love to do something else, basically. Mm-hmm. But fundamentally, on Australian waterway or Australian waters, this is, this is a key issue. It's costing us a lot of time and effort and, and money. 
for me, if we are serious about actually addressing this marine debris issue, we've got the opportunity to actually do something really positive. Even something as simple, if I think, okay, 15,000, I did the sums before, 15,000 ghost nets come into the Gulf of Carpentaria since 2004. If we said $10,000 per ghost net, that would cost the government $150 million. I'd say money well spent and you'd get my vote. You might need 10 grand. I know. The project we ran didn't cost anywhere near that much. Like what it's about is about putting a value on things, yeah, so exactly. putting a value on it so that in other countries where the education or the waste management system is not great or non-existent, yeah. there's a value placed on that net. And, you know, in the Pacific, when mm. we looked at this issue over in Solomons and Vanuatu, yes, there's a ghost net issue, but when a net washes up on a beach, it's pretty much snapped up straight away by communities and turned into other stuff. You know, they use it for other things around their house and for hammocks and netting for their roofs and as well as they might turn it into a fishing net and so on and reuse it. So I think it's about putting value on stuff, what's really important. And it's not the only solution, but it's part of that solution. Plus there's a whole lot of other things that could happen like gear marking so that if we find someone's net, you can tell whose net it was and there's a fisheries management process place for you know sort of thing but yeah it's in a developing country context where you have limited fisheries management and you have hundreds of thousands if not millions of small scale fishes as well as really big fishes like this issue is enormous with the tuna tuna fishery in the pacific and the indian actually every ocean where tuna is fished it's also a massive issue, which is maybe a story for another day. But, you know, like it's about how you create accountability in that situation where it's, you know, large industrial fishing. How do you create sort of a value on that gear so that they don't just chuck it on the beach, but when they finish with it or they don't just, when it gets a hole, dump it off the boat, off the back of the boat because there's nobody seeing what's happening. And, mm. you know, so I think we've got to understand what causes the problem which is what we spent a long time in Indonesia trying to understand why do we have an issue in Australia, like what causes the nets to come mm. here. And I think that then helps you then formulate a response because otherwise you just think we've got to stop the nets. This is really wrong. The government yeah. should make this happen. So, But if you can find what the drivers are and then look at how you can address the challenges that those drivers pose or stop those drivers or provide an alternate, you get a bit, you know, it makes it a more sustainable outcome as well. Because if the money, once the money runs out, that's it, you know, as well. So you've got to find sustainable solutions. Do you have any idea how many ghost nets are cut from illegal fishing boats versus legitimately lost for whatever reason? Because just off the top of my head, I'd say a lot of them would be from illegal fishing boats during the runner, cutting and trying to get away. Do you know any of the stats on that? I don't know any stats. I know in Indonesia um, a few years ago there was a massive illegal fishing issue in the Arafura Sea, although the previous fisheries minister, who Ibisusi, she stopped it and kicked them all out. When that was happening, what it created was a lot of gear conflict. So you'd have trawlers, big trawlers going this way and big gill net boats going that way and they'd all just run over each other, you know, and so their nets would get cut. And then you had all the illegal stuff happening as well. So if the Navy did see them, they'd cut the net and run. So that created a storm of issues, if you like, which is why we've still, you know, even though that, the illegal fishing has been stopped and trawling has actually been banned in the Arafura as well. We've still got lots and lots of nets coming to Australia. Mm. And that could be because there's a lot still in the Arafura Sea that are 
being churned up when a storm comes, like the whole bottom could be covered in nets. We don't know. No one's looked at what what's going on in the Arafura or it could be for other reasons. But I can't give you any statistics on illegal versus not, but the reasons why are usually to do with gear conflict, illegal fishing, education, not knowing how to secure your net on the back of the boat and you hit bad weather, or not knowing how to retrieve your net if it gets caught because you don't have equipment on board to help you do that, that sort of stuff. Like There's a bunch of different reasons we discovered for Indonesia for why we get this issue here. So I guess a question would be, are you actually optimistic? So you've been looking at this issue for a long time, as have others. Mm. Are you optimistic that we actually will appropriately address this issue? I think so. There's so much global attention on this issue now. Like The Global Ghost Gear Initiative has done an amazing job at putting the focus on this issue. So, uh, you know, in the context of all the, the other focus around plastics at the moment. And so I think the issue won't go away. It's on every agenda. Every country is aware of it. Whether they're doing anything or not is another thing, but the pressure is mounting, I guess, for countries that have these challenges. So I'm pretty optimistic that we'll solve the problem. I think it's going to take ages though. You know, like I'm aiming to try and have some sort of regional agreement by 2030 not stop the nets but have a regional agreement to say we'll stop. You know, like these things take years and years of, of work. So I think, you know, it, it is going to take time but the technology is getting better and better and, you know, just from the work we did with the, the Northern Australia looking at disposal options, the technology that's available now that wasn't available 10 years ago when we last looked at this, what can we do with these nets We've come so far and so in another 10 years' time, who knows where we'll be with even better in-situ sort of solutions and so on and for beach collection and to help rangers and interception with satellite tracking and whatever. You said before earlier on in the podcast that people go out if they can't get the fish net in then they'll put a GPS tracker on it and they'll come back and get it later. Yeah. Why is there not a GPS tracker on every ghost net or every net that they put in the water? Oh, because you can stick a bloody Apple thing on your sunglasses now and find my yeah. On my sunglasses. Yeah, there's a lot of work. There's a lot of work underway at the global level um, through the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization, to look at gear marking. They call it gear marking, and there's actually a um, standard. They've got the guidelines out for fishing gear marking. They've been trialing that in Indonesia and in other places, Vanuatu and so on. But the challenges, I think, in a developing country context, it, I think it's a good solution where you have big scale fishes or like our fishes that are all really regulated and managed and, you know, responsible. In a developing country, though, you've got a couple of million small scale artisanal fishes that are in canoes or tiny little boats with little, you know, lawnmower motor type things on mm. the back. And how you put gear marking on them is is what I struggle with trying to work out. Yeah, you, you're going to make that affordable. You're going to make that free. You've got to make yeah. How do you manage it? Because the management of those little fishes is so much more complicated than trying to manage a tuna fleet where you just set a quota and it's all managed and, you know, all that. So I think it's, it's, it's a solution, but it's it won't work in all situations. Well, let's, you know, he replies back to everyone else on Twitter. So let's um, get old Elon. And his, um, have you guys seen... Have you seen his satellite snake go over? No. Oh God. Yeah, I saw on Facebook. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. no. So literally, we were we were we sitting out the other night under the stars. So we were up the lake, uh, up the stars, and literally looking up, and you see his snake of satellites. You go, oh my God. Yeah, he's got them all in a row, and they come over like a. You just Google it. 
Technology will be a massive driver, but like anything, we've got to bring the price of that down. And developing countries like Australia should be putting that, their money behind the technology to give to the, you know, to the Indonesians, to the Samoans. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. that's the way we've got to drive it. Incentivise its use. Like if it's costing Australia a lot of money to pull these nets out when they get on our beach, it's surely far more effective to give a local Indonesian fishermen a, a tracking device or whatever it might be, incentivise its use. They have to check it in every month or whatever, and they get a, I don't know, a, a credit for every time they prove that they're doing the right thing. And they get a credit for when it's returned. There is. I mean, the Australian government's got a new ghost net initiative, which is running for the next couple of years. And they are looking at solutions, which is why they asked us to do that report, to try and find these better ways of solving this problem, because they don't want to be funding ranger groups forever to pick up nets either. Plus the impact it has on turtles and, you know, sharks and dugongs and all that mm. kind of stuff, seagrass beds and whatnot. And so I think, you know, look, if you look at, Australia is investing a lot here in technology as well. There's another program I'm involved in. There's a national environmental science program that Australia funds. We're into the second one of it now. And there's a sustainable communities and waste hub, which I'm a part of. And as part of that, we're doing some work on ghost net technology or not ghost net technology, but the remanufacturing technology for the, the ghost net issues up north as a part of that potentially. And you know, so there's a lot of investment because Australia is boarding the export bans on plastics as well. We now have to find our own solutions for how do we deal with plastic or, mm. you know, the really hard to recycle stuff as well, like tyres and glass and all that. And so this hub is all about looking at solutions and working with partners on trying to move things forward in that space. And then that technology can be taken overseas to be used, which is what we're trying to do with the work we do in New South Wales Uni is to take that technology into Indonesia and, and so mm. on and, and get it working over there and roll it out and help stop the nets coming to Australia yeah. that way, but also create opportunity for the communities. And to Jeremy's point about Elon Musk or general entrepreneurship, like if we can commercially incentivize uh, an industry around solving this issue, fantastic. There's no harm in actually solving a problem, making a dollar in the process. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. I just Googled earlier on um, who is recycling ghost nets. And as you can imagine, all the big, you know, fashion people, Vulcan, Ocean Zen, uh, liar. Um, I've even just put it in the tr- chat. They're making bikinis out of it, Brad, so you might as well, might as well oh. get some budgie smugglers for yourself, mate. <laughs> yeah, everybody from Adidas to you name it, they're all doing it these days. <laughs> Greenwashing there, but anyway. Well, well, I don't know. I don't know if it is or not, but I mean, it's good that people are using marine debris and that and, yeah. you know, puts a value on it, but the, the challenge we've got for Northern Australia is those options that the transport costs kill them. Like, I've had so many requests from bottle manufacturing and cosmetic companies saying, oh, can we get some nets? We want to we wanna get some ghost nets. And I say to them, okay, so this is, it's going to cost you like this much to get these nets from these beaches where they're stored down to Sydney or Melbourne or whatever, and it just kills any project before you start. So which is why I guess we've tried to look at what you can do in situ to solve the problems of disposal anyway up north because it would be great if we could then work with, you know, these big global closed companies and stuff, but it, but it, it's a really hard. In other parts of Australia where we've got ghost net issues where it's not as big but it's easier to collect the gear, then, yeah, yeah, we can, you know, work with them, but it's, it's really hard for Northern. 
I feel as though we could talk about this issue all day and uh, I'm sure it's great to hear so many different groups uh, working together to actually appropriately address this issue and, and it'd be remiss of us not to acknowledge all the wonderful work that is done by the various ranger groups and individuals yeah. that are actively doing the cleanup day in, day out in very difficult working conditions, doing an amazing job. So shout out to those guys. I guess final question would be, have you got any sort of pearls of wisdom or advice for the listeners that you've given them a wonderful insight into the problem and potential solutions around this ghost nets issue. But is there anything that you could recommend to the listeners that they could actually do to help address this issue? Uh, I think what I mean, the obvious thing is you can always, you know, support the, the conservation groups that work on this issue because they're the ones doing the beach cleanups or trying to change policy or whatever. There's always opportunity to support them. But I think, you know, like as individuals with the plastic issue as a whole globally, if, there's, if we can try and think about how we can reduce our own plastic use or find reuse or recycle opportunities and so on for it, you know, that every little bit counts. And trying to prevent that bit of plastic ending up in the waterways is one of the best things we can do to, to deal with the marine debris issue. And, and yes, we've got good waste management here, but we still have lots of plastic and rubbish in stormwater, you know, when it rains and whatnot. So I think just being conscious of it and how much plastic you're using and thinking about what can I do to try and reduce my plastic or how can I make sure it gets recycled, noting that there's all this work going on to try and find solutions for the really hard to, to recycle plastic stuff now in Australia so that it will all happen in country and we won't be exporting our mm. issue to Indonesia mm. and having it then washed back to here. I think it's, yeah, I mean, it's those sorts, they're the, they're the, it's the little things that, that can be done that will that will make a difference as individuals because, I mean, it's hard when the issue is so complicated and, and big up in Northern Australia. So I think it's about, you know, just to make it tangible, you just think about what I can do to try and contribute and, you know, make a difference. Mm. Now, I'll, I'll, thank, you for, thank you for that. I'll, I'll end with, with um, an easier form than that. Don't eat fish. Uh, if you're a big fish eater, don't eat fish. I mean, you're going to, the supply and demand, if you don't put the demand on it, then we won't have ghost sense at the start because the fishermen won't be out there. So what you could do for all our listeners, all the wonderful listeners, is you eat fish three times a week, eat it once a week, and you're doing a massive, massive part for, for, for all the fisheries around the world. But that is the most simple way that you, at home, that you can help solve that problem. So anyway. Jeremy, I can't believe this is the same Jeremy Brown. This three years ago, we were... Bat- battling each other you know I'm, I'm i'm vegan as i said know anissa and i sort of quite vocal about you know the uh, environmental benefits of reducing the consumption of animal products including fish and uh, i can't believe jeremy's uh singing in the choir as well he's got a beautiful voice hold on hold on but if you do like fish get off your lazy bum and go and get it yourself you don't need a fish net go down to the yeah, ocean i agree and and, and go spear fishing or go off the coast do it for yourself take home what you need um, that's the most sustainable way to do it. So if you're a big fish lover, you know, get your rod out and go go sit down by the wharf. Mm, good for you. Hey, well, we're going to land this plane. Um, what a wonderful chat. Um, you know, this is the best thing about the the, 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 the podcast and, and Brad said at the start, we get people on, you know, every week. And you don't, well, I tend to not do any research because it makes it better. <laughs> but you get to learn so much wonderful knowledge and you hear about, the amazing people all around Australia, all around the world, all trying to do the very best they can to make it better for our children. So thank you very much for coming on our show today and uh, we look forward to following the tremendous work that you guys do. Thanks so much. It was really great. Boom, boom. 
Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.